The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, um, the Director of Westbridge Community Services, and I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, I'm very excited today as our guest is Dr. David Ming Lee, who I'm sure most of you are totally aware of. And for those of you who aren't, Dr. Mealy is a leading expert in co-occurring substance use and mental disorders with over 30 years experience in person-centered treatment and program development. Dr. Mealy is not your usual psychiatrist, nor is he your usual educator. Um, Dr. Mealy writes and speaks in down-to-earth, jargon-free language that makes learning challenging and enjoyable. People consistently express satisfaction with this combination of rich content and practical approach delivered in an engaging style. His down-to-earth upbringing in Australia, coupled with his Chinese heritage, makes for an interesting mix of dry humor and quiet wisdom. Dr. Mealy is a board-certified psychiatrist and is certified by the American Board of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Mealy has trained and consulted for hundreds of organizations, ranging from small mental health centers to government departments and national behavioral health care companies. Dr. Mealy has also authored a number of book chapters and papers in a variety of professional publications. He is the chief editor of the ASAM Patient patient placement criteria, and he is a senior advisor to the change companies. Welcome, Dr. Mealy. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, well, today we're going to talk about the clash between mental health and substance abuse and that has been going on since probably the beginning of time. And I was wondering, from your perspective, um, where you see, what do you see as kind of the root cause of the clash? Well, you know, in the United States at least, uh, general health care and mental health in particular has often over the years shunned addiction treatment. And, uh, and in that vacuum, addiction treatment, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and, and the wonderful work of, of AA and 12-step programs in, in many ways stepped into that, to that vacuum uh, some decades ago. And out of that, I think, have developed an, uh, has developed an addiction treatment system which uh, has not always had a close relationship to mental health and the rest of health care and vice versa. So there, there have been some historical roots to why we've often come to serve people with co-occurring mental and substance disorders from different sides of the fence. Well, you know, I think um, it's really interesting because historically when you look at the founders of AA, Dr. Bob was a practicing surgeon and utilized the hospital that he worked in to help treat people, especially to help detoxify them. And Bill Wilson was in clinical trials for all types of um, bipolar disorder and depression. So the two founders certainly had a close connection to mental illness. 
That's right. That's right. And we forget some of those roots, and and uh, and that was sort of rich in in really uh, beginning a chance for integration way back then. But somehow, between the development of different treatment systems, different funding systems, different licensing, and 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 even more importantly, the fact that unfortunately, many people in mental health are not taught about addiction and many people in addiction treatment are not taught about mental health or at least that's historically how it's been right. we've uh, perpetuated uh, a, a big gap between mental health and addiction treatment systems I'm afraid and mental health care I mean goes back um, people have been trying to be treated for mental health care back since I don't know the 17 or 1800s in America where there's been well developed um, you know, asylums, for for lack of a better word, right. um, different medications that were developed to treat people, um, hydrotherapy, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Where with addiction treatment, there's been some of that, but it hasn't been to the same degree. And for whatever reason, medication seems to be more suspect with addiction treatment than it is with mental health treatment. Right, right. And I think some of that, at least in the United States, has come from our... Uh, 12-step recovery routes as as being the beginning of addiction treatment in the United States. That's not as much of an issue in in Australia and Europe and Canada and, and other countries. My mother graduated from nursing school in 1939, and she she used to tell about these horrific clinical experiences with, when people would come onto a ward and they'd be in DTs and they really couldn't do anything for them but, like, restrain them and kind of keep them from, you know, aspirating while they were going through the horrors of the DTs. And that's a very that was a very fixed memory for her. Mm-hmm. And when I went to nursing school, it was um, right about the time they decriminalized um, alcoholism in New York State. And um, nurses pretty much felt like, you know, you didn't want to have an alcoholic on your floor. I mean, they were just, they were, they were bothered. They were just seen as second-class or even third-class citizens. I, I remember George Valiant, who really has done a lot in addiction treatment as a psychiatrist uh, as well, but he, he, he was saying years back outside the emergency room or above the door of the emergency room of Cambridge Hospital in, in the, the Boston area uh, in Massachusetts was the unwritten sign that said, alcoholics need not apply. And uh, that's really how it's been in healthcare and and uh, mental health too. That uh, we don't want to work with those people, kind of thing. Right, right. And you know, I think one of the ironies um, from my perspective is is that with the advent of benzodiazepines, which has made withdrawal from alcohol a much safer experience, it's also created within the addiction community. Um, a real bias against benzodiazepines because of the addictive properties. Right. And that seems to be an ongoing clash, too, between mental health and, and, and the addiction world. And not just benzodiazepines, but psychostimulants for ADHD and, and people who happen to have chronic pain. Uh, the interface between these um, admittedly addicting medications uh, comes up when we have to look at people who who often have co-occurring issues, not everybody fits neatly into either mental health or addiction or or physical health. So, so how do we go about trying to bridge the two 
philosophies. Right. Well, that's uh, the focus a lot in many states and counties uh, these days, but I think it begins with uh, everybody making a commitment to meeting the needs of the people we serve. If we could first say, let's let's just think how we bring all of our training, experience, and uh, services and focus on who are the people we are serving, it would be quickly clear that the people we serve now don't fit just into additional mental health. And uh, if we first had a commitment to that, of course there's lots of steps after that, but if we first had a commitment to that, that would in a way bring us all on the same team because the people we serve require us really to look at mental health and substance issues in a more holistic and person-centered way. Um, I was at a national um, conference last year, I guess it was last year or the year before, where there were a host of um, medical directors from a variety of well-known addiction treatment programs which debated um, whether if someone was on medicated, like medication-assisted um, recovery, be it buprenorphine, methadone, um, I guess even from their perspective, a campersate, would they were they truly in recovery? Mm. Um, and there's still that whole debate about, you know, is recovery abstinence? Right. Yes. I mean, these are these are some of the attitudinal issues that we are still needing to struggle with and work with because uh, uh, those are the debates that go on. What worries me about those debates is it leaves out of the picture what is the effectiveness of the work we're doing. We, we shouldn't be treating people by uh, policy or ideology, but more looking at what are the outcomes of the work that we're doing and are we succeeding as much as possible in helping people get into recovery by whatever means uh, that takes. So unfortunately, when we get into different religions, as it were, of different models, we get more focused on debating the models than on tracking the outcomes of the work that we're doing. And do we have good outcomes nationally? Well, I think depends, uh, you know, any discussion about outcomes depends on when you're talking about for which population, for what kinds of outcomes are we looking at. Uh, but I think we're all agreed that treatment works better than no treatment. Uh, but what we also know from research both in mental health and substance abuse is that while treatment works better than no treatment, there's no one just simple model that fits for all people and that we have to really draw on a wide variety of evidence-based practices and promising practices uh, to focus on what's going to work best for this person at this point in time, at their particular stage of readiness and interest, um, and, and uh, to focus it in a more individualized, outcomes-driven way, not in a ideological uh, model way. Um, just for the benefit of some of our audience, could you explain the difference between um, an evidence-based practice and a promising practice? And we'll, you can do that right after our next commercial. Okay. We'll be right back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Queenie's Happy Hour is the place for fun every Monday night after work. Pull up a bar stool and let your favorite bartender mix up some life, laughter, and learning. Queenie, also known as Nancy Wagierski, is a certified facilitator of the Law of Attraction and is here to start your week with a smile and education about making the Law of Attraction work for you. Pour yourself an after-work martini and join us every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for Queenie's Happy Hour on the Voice America Business channel ready to lift your spirit join karen Tatanich every week for spirit connections karen will share with you the power of energy work it can get you through the good times and the tough times karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy there are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet you'll learn about the power of spirit at home at work and at play Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, today our guest is Dr. David Mealy, um, who I'm sure a lot of you know and recognize his voice very well. Um, and please take advantage of this time. If you have a question for Dr. Mealy, uh, give us a call. Um, he'd be happy to answer it. And before going to break, I had asked him to tell us the difference between a promising practice and um, evidence-based practices for the addiction of substance use disorders. So. Yes, well, uh, you know, when we think about evidence-based practices, you wouldn't want to go to a doctor who just said, well, I just do the same thing I've been doing for the past 30 years and I don't read any research or find out what's uh, new in the field and what's working and what's different. Uh, we would want to go to somebody who was interested in evidence-based practices, meaning that the work that we do is backed up by some science and some evidence that it works better than placebo or better than some other kinds of treatments. So evidence-based practices have been getting a lot of attention, not just in mental health and addiction, but in across healthcare in general, as we want to make sure we use resources to the best treatments that have the best chance of giving a person uh, an effective outcome. 
um, one of the terms or worries about everybody just uh, focusing on evidence-based practices, though, is that it uh, it it stops sometimes the thought that maybe there are some practices that have not yet passed the rigor of a double-blind, uh, uh, random, controlled study, but has uh, promises for being something that can be effective. And if we just focus on evidence-based practices, it blocks out sometimes the opportunity for people to implement practices that have the promise of being perhaps just as effective. So people talk about promising practices as things that look like they're working, haven't fully been studied, but that we shouldn't just ignore uh, because they have a potential for being effective as well. Well, and I think, you know, it, it seems from, from my perspective that, that, especially in the addiction world, that there's this black and white, all or nothing kind of thinking that we kind of reflect what some of our clients think. And that, you know, when you think about, um, to use a medical analogy, like, you know, 30 years ago, you know, people were getting their gallbladders out by doing an old-fashioned um, laparotomy and you retracted their liver and you took the gallbladder out and it took an hour if the surgeon was good from from beginning to end. And now, you know, they do laparoscopies and they do the Band-Aid surgery, but that doesn't mean that the old way of doing it wasn't effective. Um, And I think that, you know, sometimes we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, you know, um, that this is an ongoing process. It's not... You know, everything doesn't have to be an event. It's a process. Yeah. Well, uh, and another way, as I was talking before, about if we're focused on outcomes, it's not so much just fidelity to a particular model. It is, is, is this model or is this practice or is this treatment working for this person at this point in time? There may be nothing wrong with the treatment, but it may not be a good fit for this particular person at this point in time. So we have to be ready to shift, I think, between different practices and to try different things. Many There are many paths to recovery and not just one, and there are many different needs uh, that people have. So I'm always more focused on how do we become person-centered and outcomes-driven, uh, not just fidelitous to a particular model. Um, even if that's been effective for other people, it may be not effective for this person. So we have to keep being ready to shift to what's going to work for this person at this point in time. And I think that's a really good point because when we talk about the medications that are being that are currently available for folks to help assist in their recovery, um, you know, we don't have a wide range of them, but some of the medications are very effective for some people, mm-hmm. but some of the medications... Um, some people have a very poor response to, but that doesn't make that a bad medication. It's just not the no. right fit for that individual. And I think people don't understand that either. It's like, well, you know, campersate didn't work for John Doe, so it isn't right. any good. Yeah, we wouldn't say that about antibiotics or about blood pressure medication or cholesterol medication. Much of medicine has many things that have been proven to be effective, but not every one of the medications are effective for all people. So... We're all used to being in a sort of a trial and error process, but even with medications for what everybody agrees is an illness and what everybody agrees can be effective medication, but we don't condemn uh, medications if it doesn't work for this particular person at this point in time. 
And I guess that gets back to our original kind of discussion around this clash. Why do we have this standard in addiction treatment that we don't have in general medicine? Why is it so rigid? Yeah, well, I, I think that with, with good reason, people who work in the addiction treatment field, and I've worked in that for over 30 years, uh, we've often run into cases and anecdotes of people who were either told that they had depression and not a drinking problem or that they had anxiety and not a, uh, you know, heroin problem and, and were treated with medications which really blocked their ability to get into recovery. A, a because nobody made the diagnosis of addiction and B, they just kept perpetuating that the way you should treat this anyway is just a medication. So I understand the pain that has come from many recovering people or people who've worked with people who've seen the misuse of diagnoses and medications for people with addiction. And so that understandably, I think, prejudices and makes them more skeptical about medications that have been often misused and abused and so forth. Uh, having said that, though, we shouldn't, as you say, throw the baby out with the bathwater and then say all medications are bad or all benzodiazepines or all, you know, pain medications or all psychostimulants are bad just because they have been misused. Any good thing can be uh, misused and have a detrimental effect. Uh, so we don't throw out something that can be effective just because it can also cause havoc for somebody else. We have to... That's where I think assessment of what's going on with a particular person and and trying to do treatment by looking at what the person needs and what's working rather than treatment by policy. Uh, what I've seen sometimes is that programs will do treatment by policy, which means, well, you can come into our program if you're on that medication but not on that medication. Right. And uh, that doesn't take into account... Uh, first assessing what those person's needs are. And yes, we don't want people to be addicted to a medication. On the other hand, if they have a co-occurring disorder for which that medication has worked and stabilized them, we don't want to be too quick to just by policy uh, make somebody come off a medication that we haven't even assessed yet what was the circumstances under which it was prescribed and has it been working for them and is this the only thing that's worked for them and so forth. So you kind of just began to talk a little bit about the assessment and um, can you, I mean, this is a, a wide range of um, of skills that people need to assess people today because um, it's, it's, very com it's much more complicated than it was 30 years ago. Yes, and, it, it is. I mean, the, some of the dangers that mental health people have is that they treat signs and symptoms as a disorder. So somebody comes in depressed, but are they really suffering from major depression or is that cocaine crash? Somebody comes in with anxiety, is that really anxiety disorder or are they withdrawing from benzodiazepines or alcohol? Somebody comes in with mood swings, is that really bipolar disorder or are they intoxicated using uppers and downers? So mental health people can sometimes run the risk of just treating signs and symptoms as a psychiatric diagnosis and starting medication without taking a careful substance history. Uh, addiction people can sometimes have the opposite problem, saying, well, you're depressed, well, that'll go away once you get through detox, or you're having mood swings, well, that's just because you're doing uppers and downers, don't drink and go to meetings, and they're not sort of really 
explore for a co-occurring problem that may be accounting for why um, recovery is not going well or why the person may be relapsing. So we have something to learn from each side of the fence about how to assess somebody who comes in that who may be drinking and drugging but also have mental health problems. Some of those people will have a true co-occurring disorder. Others may be drinking and drugging because they're trying to medicate a mental health problem. Other people may have mental health symptoms because that's just part of their addiction illness. So they're having anxiety or mood swings because of... Uh, their addiction illness and they're about to lose their job or family, they, they, it would be surprising if they weren't anxious. Um, on the other hand, some people may look like they have an addiction problem, they're just trying to medicate a mental health problem and then other people can truly have true two co-occurring disorders. And so how do we assess, what's the gold standard for assessment? Well, some of those, uh, I think, first starts off with taking a good history. And uh, one of the first questions that I always ask people who come in who are drinking and drugging and who have mental health problems is, were your mental health problems associated closely in time with you using substances or not? I uh, interviewed a young woman uh, 25 a couple of weeks ago. She'd been hospitalized in the past 12 months to an acute psychiatric unit with suicidal behavior, even to the point of cutting herself and needing sutures. But I said, were you using at the time of or not long before your suicidal behavior? She said, well, yes, actually I was getting high on crack cocaine. And I said, well, do you think you would have done that scary sort of cutting stuff if you hadn't been using? She said, no, I'm not actually that depressed. But when... I use, that's when things really get crazy for me. Well, that's a, that's, uh, from that question, I'm going to make a hypothesis right off that I'm going to be looking much more at addiction issues than assuming this is major depression with borderline personality disorder or something. Um, because the history places the substance use very close to the mental health presentation. That's why in, in DSM-4 we have substance-induced disorders, psychiatric diagnoses that look like a general psychiatric diagnosis but induced by the use of a substance. Same with, you know, substance-induced psychosis and substance-induced anxiety disorder. So one question is, were you using at the time of or not long before your mental health presentation and see if there's a timeline? If they say no, another question to ask is, um, what it's the time sequence between the development of addiction and mental health problems. So you can do a timeline back, born, talked, walked, uh, no problems in school, no physical sexual abuse, now as an adolescent experiments with substances, now getting into addiction problems, now developing mental health issues. One hypothesis might be, well, maybe we have somebody with an addiction problem who's developing mental health issues as a result of their addiction illness. Uh, in reverse, born, talked, walked, physical sexual abuse, special classes in school, ADHD, medications, now experimenting with substances, now you see other mental health problems. This is somebody who may have an addiction problem and a co-occurring mental health issue. So sometimes just looking at the time sequence can at least give you a hypothesis about which to to make some decisions. 
and we'll be right back. Um, please give us a call if you have questions for Dr. Mealy. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. David Mealy is our guest today, and we're talking about a variety of subjects. Um, we were talking a little bit before we went to break about assessment for co-occurring disorders and the use of a timeline and a really good history to help kind of make that uh, differential diagnosis about which came first. Um, and, uh, you know, I just have to say this, that there's, there's a kind of a national, um, there are some people who are prominent nationally who really want to debunk the whole idea of co-occurring disorders and 
really believe that we're focusing as a profession too much on that. And, and I just have to say that when I first started in this profession 30 years ago, um, it was real simple. There were alcoholics and there were drug addicts, and alcoholics were older men who were probably, you know, 40s and over, and drug addicts were younger people who got caught up in the 60s. And it was relatively simple. And then when that started to merge, then we started to get a little bit more complicated. And But it seems like, um, you know, now we're talking second and third, fourth generation of people who have had addictive disorders in their families, and and it's just so much more complicated. And I'm just wondering, without putting you on the spot, are there good references where where people who who want to debate this can go to say, well, yes, there are good data on the fact that there is an increase in co-occurring disorders in the addiction world? Oh, well, there's um, there's a number of uh, household surveys and so forth that I, can, I can't quote you numbers off the top of my head, but in the day and age of going to Dr. Google, you know, if you if you are put in uh, looking at some of the uh, statistics on co-occurring disorders, that will bring you to a lot of references on that uh, where, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the people who come for services in mental health or addiction services um, are not just one or the other, and that if you look at various um, uh, household surveys as well as looking at just the, I mean, if you just speak to somebody who uh, uh, treats anybody that uh, that takes a history of their substance history and mental health issue, um, it's really pretty hard to say that we shouldn't be focusing more on, on people with co-occurring issues. Now, having said that, because we are more conscious of co-occurring disorders, that doesn't mean that everybody who's drinking and drugging and who has mental health problems has a true co-occurring disorder. So we don't want to overreact and say everybody has co-occurring disorders. But um, but I don't think it you would be able to find many populations these days where somebody comes in and, and they say, my problem is I just drink too much, and then you ask them, well, have you had any mental health problems? And they just said, no, I've never had that. And and do you use any other drugs? And no, I don't, just alcohol. Uh, you know, just the clinical realities are such. So if people doubted that, uh, just Google uh, statistics on on. Uh, mental health and substance abuse, and that will lead you to a lot of surveys, I think, that would help you to to uh, realize it's uh, a, a much broader reality than than perhaps we we uh, realize. And I think there's a real, there, there's, a, there's a small segment in our profession that really wants to hold on to yesterday, mm-hmm. if you will, and I think that, um, you know, as they say in uh, self-help, is yesterday's gone. And, uh, you know, we have to live in the in today. And I think that um, folks that try to go out and debunk current research or debunk things that don't believe what their policy is or don't reflect what their personal policy is or their company's policy or their own personal beliefs, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's not good for anyone. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I, I said let's focus or let's all focus on who are the people in the community that we're serving and to try to join together based on that um, and not to be so focused on our turf battles and on our ideology battles, but on how do we use all of our knowledge because we have something to learn from each other 
mental health has uh, things to learn from addiction treatment in terms of the focus on 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 recovery and holistic growth not just symptom management uh addiction treatment systems have a lot to learn from mental health about how do we hang in with people and not just discharge people for having a relapse i mean we would never do that for somebody's uh, panic disorder or psychosis or bipolar disorder to discharge them if they showed up with a with a relapse and yet we do that in addiction treatment and both mental health and addiction has a lot to learn from what's happening in general health now where there's an increasing focus on wellness and on engaging people in in the self-management of their uh, diabetes and and other other illnesses uh, the institute of medicine uh, did a report a few years ago on the, on the quality chasm in healthcare and uh, a lot of what they were saying was we need to be involving people much more in their own uh, health and recovery process uh and and uh, that's a good message i think for addiction and mental health and for general health as well um you touched on a couple of things that i'd like to um just have you kind of expound on and that's the whole notion of when someone is active in their disease when they have an addiction, they're usually thrown out of treatment or denied treatment. Mm. And when someone's actively symptomatic in their mental illness, the whole system embraces them. You know, it's like um, it becomes like almost a crisis moment. Okay, somebody's really psychotic, we have to do something. If somebody's really intoxicated, it's like go away and come back when you don't, you know, stay sober. Yeah, I mean, it is a crisis moment. If somebody's drinking a drug, we need to intervene with that and try to cut that short. Uh, when often we have said in the past, if you uh, use, don't come to treatment and come back when you're stable. Or if they do come to treatment, we say, go away until you're stable. We would, we would never do that for any other illness. Uh, now, of course, you know, people worry about uh, somebody coming and using and triggering somebody in a group obviously if somebody's used and they're so intoxicated they're falling off the chair and throwing up uh, they're not going to get much out of a group but but if somebody just had a couple of beers on their way to group uh, they can still get a lot out of group and and a session and the goal should be on how do we make sure it stays at a couple of beers and doesn't blossom into a full-blown relapse um just as if somebody got depressed and cut themselves, we wouldn't say go away. We'd say, hey, how do we make sure you don't get depressed tonight and do something even worse? So please come to treatment. This is a crisis. Or, or if somebody's blood pressure went up, we, we'd say let's make sure we assess what went wrong and how we change the treatment right now. We don't want to, it to, to, to go through the roof tonight and you have a stroke. You know. Right. Right, and and if we are truly person-centered, then people who are ambivalent about their substance use probably shouldn't be in a group with people who have been abstinent and sober for a long time. Well, I, I wouldn't say they don't have to be in the group, but what you would be doing with a person who's ambivalent would be different from what you're doing with a person who is uh, fully aware and wants recovery. I mean, if you think about an AA meeting, you can have somebody with three hours abstinence sitting next to somebody with 30 years of grateful recovery, sitting next to somebody who's not sure they have a problem, is just there because they want to stay out of jail, sitting next to somebody who's absolutely sure they have a problem. And yet healing things can happen if we meet people where they're at. So 
if you have a person who's ambivalent about a problem, but you're trying to get them to develop a relapse prevention plan with other people who are sure they're having a problem, then you're getting people at different stages of change to be doing the same treatment strategies. But that's where, what we shouldn't be doing. But sometimes having people at different stages, people can have a remember when or can learn from others. Uh, if we then do the treatment in a way that engages and accepts a person where they're at. You know, um, one of the things that um, I heard you say a number of years ago at a training on motivational interviewing, which um, I've used ever since, is that everybody wants something, mm. you know, and that if we look at each individual and just ask them, what, what do you want? You know, do you want to go to school? Do you want to have a hot meal? Right. Do you want your own apartment? Um, it just it makes it so much easier to treat people when you when you just focus that simply on someone. That's right, and 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 you'll get to to look at the things that you're concerned about because if we're going to help you get your kids back or get housing, we have to help you understand how you're going to pay for your rent, how you're going to demonstrate good parenting skills, especially if you're intoxicated all day every day. Uh, so we'll get to talk about those things, but it'll be through the door of engaging a person around what's important to them, not what we think they should be thinking about. Right. And, and I think so often we try to impose what we think they should be thinking about. We're currently working with a young man who doesn't want to – he has a um, – he experiences a lot of psychosis and mania, and he doesn't want to be on meds, but he wants a hot meal, and he wants a warm place to sleep. And right. So we have something to work with, right. you know, and, um, and so we've been, that's how we've been trying to engage this young man. And, mm. you know, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing to watch because people will, you know, will say, oh, wow, you're, you, you guys are great. You're giving me a hot meal with my, uh, with my Zyprexa. Yep. <laughs> Right. You know, and um, and after you know a couple of weeks of hot meals with Zyprexa, you know his thoughts clear, and um, and it's so much easier than than just you know go away and come back when you're ready to take meds. I think that's one of the interesting things in AA about attraction, not promotion. We want to attract people into recovery, not beat them over the head. Right, and we'll be right back um, with Dr. Mealy after this next break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you lack energy and enthusiasm? Do you really want to change your thoughts and feelings? Can you really stay sane when your life isn't? Of course you can. Just by listening to Stay Sane Now each week with Claudine Strzok and co-host Wesley Stoller. You'll have fun and learn how to make each new day the best day of your life. Every show is designed to energize and get you started off on the next week. Stay Sane Now is broadcast live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on 7th Wave Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you destined to be an everyday change agent in your organization, your relationships, your community? Learn how to become one when you tune in to The Change Agent on the Voice America Variety Channel. Justin A. Flunder, the chief change agent leader of the Flundonian Group, will help you examine every aspect of your personal and professional life. By observing your own thoughts, words, and actions, you will become the everyday leader that you are meant to be. The Change Agent airs live Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. This is our last segment with Dr. Mealy. So if you have any uh, questions, please give us a call now. Um, I, before we kind of get into what, what's going on with all of your many projects, Dr. Mealy, I was just, um, this is something that I've been thinking about ever since Michael Jackson passed away, and that is just the, um, you know, the lack of oversight for prescription of medication in general. And that, um, you know, we, you know, you know, we we spent a lot of money on um, interdiction um, for all the illegal drugs, but you know, there's like no oversight for all the, you know, all the stuff that doctors can prescribe. And the vast majority of people that we see now with opiate addiction are from prescription meds. It's not from, you know, people hanging out buying heroin on the street. Right. Well, there there is uh, some increasing moves uh, to be looking at the prescribing habits of physicians, and and there are setups to look at uh, tracking that, and that's one one uh, systems change that is going to be helpful. But I think more importantly, or, or or more broadly than that, is that that the one of some of the good things that come out of Anna Nicole Smith and Michael Jackson's death I think is a hopefully an increased heightened awareness of physicians that they need to be looking at addiction in their assessment and treatment of people um, all of these deaths were preventable if physicians had said there's no way I'm going to give you this medication because you have an addiction problem and this is dangerous. I mean, that's that's easier said than done sometimes when you're dealing with rich people who can buy whatever they want. Um, but uh, unfortunately, a lot of doctors still don't 
take a history to see what people are doing, and then even if they are on addictive medications, are monitoring it as they as they would other medications that they thought were were serious and dangerous. So it really is a multi-level approach that we have to take about increasing um, people or physicians and healthcare's understanding about this, knowing what to do about addiction, knowing how to set limits, uh, and then also observing what are the prescribing habits, and some of that is, is happening as well. Um, LeClaire Bissell, before her death years ago, said one time some of the best things that could happen would be for some doctors to get sued for their not detecting and taking care of addiction. And I think uh, that will be some of the good things that comes out, comes out of these tragedies, that some people are going to get sued and put in jail, and hopefully that will um, increase uh, the awareness of physicians even better than just putting on a continuing education session. Is the American Board of Addiction Medicine doing any type of consciousness raising for the for physicians in general? Are there any courses that general physicians can take? Well, I don't think the American Board of Addiction Medicine's primary focus is that, but what is happening in a big way with uh, NIAAA, the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, is a very strong push around screening and brief intervention and uh, referral to treatment. Uh, and in the past couple of years, uh, you know, a CPT code now where any physician can be paid for doing screening of alcohol and and other drugs. And if people go to NIAAA's website, there's um, some nice training videos for physicians looking at real cases that can be an interactive learning process where people... Uh, can begin to learn how to screen for uh, alcohol problems uh, and other problems as well and how to intervene with that. So NIAAA is, is putting a lot of resources into trying to tap into those 20 or so million people 12 years and older who need addiction treatment but either don't think they have a problem or if they do think they have a problem, don't reach out for help. Um, or they reach out for help but people the people that they're reaching out to don't really understand how to assess or, or understand what they're looking at. Well, that's right, and, and and that's why there's a push to get primary care physicians and others to to screen for this and intervene where people show up. People show up for coughs and colds. They don't show up to addiction or, or treatment centers. Right. Um, when I got out of nursing school in the early 70s, I worked in the operating room, and we used to know the drinkers by the amount of sodium pentothal it took to put them to sleep. Mm. And everybody would comment on it but in the OR, but I don't think it ever got commented on post-op. Right, right. You know, and they'd be there for gastrectomies and vagotomies and all yeah. these alcohol-related um, surgeries, but I don't think anybody ever addressed their alcohol use. And then we'd see somebody have a successful appendectomy and then be in the DTs three days later because nobody took or took care of their alcohol withdrawal needs. Right, right, right. Um, you are the chief editor for the ASAM patient placement criteria. Is there anything new coming with um, with ASAM with the? Yes, well, there's a, a supplement. Uh, it's called the patient placement criteria supplement for uh, the treatment pharmacotherapy of uh, alcohol use disorders. So this is going to be a supplement that will be coming out within the next six months probably uh, to a supplement to the criteria focusing more on pharmacotherapies for alcohol 
dependence. Um, so that's uh, something coming in. We're not revising the whole ASAM criteria. There's nothing in the works on that. We feel that uh, we need to focus more on helping people use it rather than changing it all again. Um, but uh, there will be the supplement that will be coming out. Are you currently are you going to continue to do consultation for organizations? Yes, well, I'm going to be continuing to do training consultation, but, uh, Mary, this gives me an opportunity to let people know that something brand new starting in January 1 for me is that I'm going to be taking on the position of uh, Senior Vice President for the change companies, which is, uh, if you go to changecompanies.net, you'll see uh, they've been in the field for nearly 20 years, but a lot of people don't know about them, and have uh, some wonderful interactive journals that uh, are being used in all 50 states uh, for clients to have workbooks to be, be, be working on in terms of their own treatment. The many criminal justice and driving, drinking, driving education programs and treatment providers already use their journals. But I'll be expanding things out uh, with the change companies to make more available, affordable training and consultation. And where can people get a hold of you? And also your little newsletter that you should tell people about. It. Yeah, well, right now, if you go to www.davidmeadley.com, uh, you'll be able to see everything about where I am and what I do, but especially for, to sign up for a free e-newsletter called Tips and Topics. And you can also search six or seven years of back issues uh, so a lot of free stuff there that you can get, and I send out a monthly e-newsletter. Uh, take a look at that and sign up for it. And Dr. Mealy will also be presenting at the CCAD um, conference in February in Nashville. And thank you so much, Dr. Mealy, for spending this hour with us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Mary. Have a good week, everyone. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.